What's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? Sir? The most you ever lost on a coin toss. I don't know. I couldn't say. Call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Well, we need to know what we're calling it for here. You need to call it. I can't call it for you. Well, it wouldn't be fair. I didn't put nothing up. Yes, you did. You've been putting it up your whole life. You just didn't know it. You know what date is on this coin? No. 1958. It's been traveling 22 years to get here. And now it's here. And it's either heads or tails. And you have to say, call it. Well, look, I need to know what I stand to win. Everything. How's that? You stand to win everything, call it. All right. Heads then. Well done. Don't put it in your pocket, sir. Don't put it in your pocket, it's your lucky quarter. Where do you want me to put it? Anywhere not in your pocket. But it'll be mixed in with the others and become just a coin. Hi, I'm Mike. And I'm Dan. Welcome back to 15 Minute Film Fanatics. I'm sure you guys know how the show works. This time we're going to revisit a favorite of Dan and mine, but not one that we've ever teased out together. It's 2007's No Country for Old Men, directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen and based on the novel by Cormac McCarthy. Dan, I know you like the novel. Do you think that this is as faithful an adaptation as I do? Oh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's great. It's one of the all time great adaptations and it's a great film. One of the ways in which it's faithful to the spirit of the novel, and it's faithful to the spirit of the novel, not just in the plot and not just in the perfect casting, that the first time you see it, the first time I saw it in the theaters and Tommy Lee Jones as Bell, you think, oh, that's brilliant. Like, like everybody is so good in it. It's also faithful to all of the things that the novel does well in terms of unsettling you. And in terms of not giving you answers about things, and I don't mean just like little things like what exactly happened when the drug deal went south. That's it's perfect. It's perfect in, in this. Here's a fundamental way it's perfect is that you can ask yourself the question of the novel and the film, who is the main character? Now, I guess ostensibly, if you had to pick one, it's it's Sheriff Bell, the titles about him and things. And he he, if you read the novel, he does all the inner chapters in italics. But when you watch this film, if you saw this film and didn't read the novel, that's it's still a good question. Like say, who's the main character, right? You could say, well, okay, maybe it's Anton Chigurh, right? It's it's about him. He's like the misfit in Flannery O'Connor. He's got no moral center. He, whatever he wants to do, he does. And it's about him plowing through the universe. You could say it's about Moss. Moss is the main character. He's like the, the almost like the um the 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 dark crime version of Jimmy Stewart, the guy that ends up in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he's somebody that the universe presents something to you and then you react to it. You try to maintain your moral grounding. Because remember, the whole movie happens. The whole movie happens because why? What mistake does he make? Because he goes back to give the water. To give the guy the water, right? And you would say, well, that's not a mistake, but he can't get the guy saying agua out of his head, right? I'm fixing to do something dumber than hell, but I'm going to do it anyway. So that's, he's the main character. And then of course you could say that 
Sheriff Bell, Tommy Lee Jones is the main character, where where you find that you're out of place in the universe and that you're trying to maintain your, your moral grounding, kind of like Moss, but you really can't do it. And you just, you, you find yourself like your old uncle who lives in a, a dirty trailer filled with cats and that the movie never... It doesn't say you have to pick one of them. It shows you these three people. And you could even say things about like, you know, Moss's wife or even his mother-in-law trying to get through, trying to get through this universe presented with all these options and how you react. And I think the film and the movie both do that beautifully. Yeah, I think uh, I couldn't help but see kind of a grid in my brain going through the movie this time. And the X axis is how capable you are of handling your immediate situation. And the y-axis is how much you value human life. And it seems like the movie says you fit into one of these boxes. You just do. Because I am I was struck watching it this time, and I've seen this movie many times, about how much um, Anton Chigurh is just a dark twin of Llewellyn. Or Llewellyn is in some ways his light twin. Not even in just in the sense um, that they wound each other. Uh, or they come for each other, but for, but the um, the way that he treats his own gunshot wound yeah. and picking it out is exactly what what Anton does. Now he you know he's a normal dude who's you know cursing and muttering under his breath, and it's funny when when he does it or or when he buys the clothes off those kids, yeah, right, and he asks for the beer, and then Anton buys the the tourniquet at the end and and hobbles away, but. They they seem to fit in one of those two boxes, and those seem to be the people that you'd make a movie about. But like to invoke North Fry a little bit, it seems like the tone or register of this movie dials down as it goes on from the heroic sphere of people who can handle their circumstance to people who can't handle their circumstance, but similarly either value or don't value human life. Trying to handle your circumstance is definitely a big thing that those two have in common. You just reminded me of a line from True Grit, another great Coen Brothers adaptation, where um, Rooster's on trial and the, and the guy um, prosecuting Rooster says, you, you certainly are one of nature's survivors, Mr. Cogburn. And that's what Anton and Moss are both nature survivors. For example, you said cap- you said capability, right? Was one of the things you said in the beginning on mm-hmm. the X-axis, right? We're, we're all impressed by the tent poles. So when Llewellyn figures out, to, what do you, I want a tent with the most poles, and he figures out to get the tent poles, and he figures out, I want the room opposite this one to put the briefcase in. As a viewer, you're like, wow, that's really smart. That's really smart. Now, it's just as clever as when Anton decides the way you get medical supplies is you blow, you blow up, a, up car. a car in front of the pharmacy. Now, you, you'd you never think of either of these, but you're kind of happy that Moss thought of the tent pole thing. You're like, oh, he's actually going to get away with it. And Anton, when he decides, yeah, he just fill up a gas tank. You put the thing in the gas tank and they blow up a car. Who cares? And you, Anton, somebody might die on the street. What if somebody's, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So they're both nature survivors. They're trying to be survivors. But of course, only Anton survives, even after he's been hit by a car. And if And so if you go down, below that axis to the people who are not capable you get kind of you get kind of the sheeple that are literally being you know plunked yeah. in the head like they're cattle but then you get sheriff bell and sheriff bell sits roughly almost where we're sitting because he can kind of touch the wall and see where the lock hit the wall right so he can trace the actions of those people that are capable but you know you're not expecting a shootout when you think that, you know, you know, when you think that Anton is still in the motel room and mm-hmm. he's going to slide the door open and uh, he's already gone out the window. But you you think that they're in there at the yep. same time and he thinks to himself, maybe I should walk away 
And then he pulls his pistol out. There's no big shootout. It's if I open the door and he's in there, I'm going to die. But he thinks, okay, I have to go in. Right. And so he's not, he's not testing like both Anton and Llewellyn push open the motel doors to see where everybody would be just in case you got yep. into a jackpot in case you got into trouble. Um, Bell does it the first time and flicks the lights on and we're all relieved to see that there's nothing in there because nobody has plot armor in this movie and nobody wants to see Sheriff Bell die. And so I think that that's the quadrant that we at, as viewers at least are supposed to inhabit. Okay, so welcome back. In part two, of course, we always talk about our favorite moments or uh, key scenes. Dan, what's a key scene? I have a lot of key scenes that go together and they're they're almost they're not even giant scenes or little moments. And these are also things that I think are done really well in the novel. And I could start the first representative moment of this is when Moss comes across the the shot up car. He's out hunting, you know, in the movies about how the hunter becomes the hunted, and he's out there hunting, um, and he comes across the circle of pickup trucks and and all the bodies, and he's trying to figure out what's going on in the novel. Cormac McCarthy will say things like he saw that, you know, the, the gun had to be fired from the inside of the truck. And, and the literal sense will be he stood and thought about that. And I always like that as a sentence in the novel. I always that was good. He stood and thought about that. And in the film, the Coen brothers let you see, you know, you see Josh Brolin take his time. He's walking around. There's no big clues. Oh, this person must. He says there must have been a last man standing. Where did you go? He figures out the guy went to the shade. That's where he finds the money. But what's remarkable about this film and the novel as well is it's the it's one of the only movies where you see people think live on screen in front of you. So you have Tommy Lee Jones thinking about the hotel door. Right. Do, do I go in there or not? You see Wells thinking about the luggage like, hmm. Woody Harrelson, like, where would that go, right? You see Anton going through the phone bill, like trying to figure figure out where he is. And that this movie has a lot of scenes of its characters thinking in front of you. And what's interesting about that is that we're used to people in movies being a little bit smarter than us. They could be really smart. Like you could be Sherlock Holmes or Poirot. And the fun of those movies is that they're so much smarter than you that you're gonna you're gonna watch them kind of kind of figure it out, right? But um usually in movies characters are a little too smart or they think on their feet a little too quickly and a little too well. Why? Because you got to keep the plot going. You don't have time to watch somebody sit there and do a geometry proof, right? You've got to, you got to see it happen. And I, I think that watching people think live in this film is interesting because it reinforces that big issue of, well, what are you going to do? Well, I have to think about it. I, I, like there's a lot of to process here. There's a lot to process in terms of information. Like how do I get back in the country? I'll get the beer on me, leave I'm a drunk, right? But, but it's also like, how do I process all this morally? And that, you know, kudos to, to Cormac McCarthy and the Coen brothers for, for slowing down those moments in what could be like a like a caper movie, like trying to get the briefcase. What's in the briefcase? Um, like it could be like, you know what? This this is like a nightmare version of North by Northwest. It could be like that. In North by Northwest, you have something. Everyone wants it, but it's fun. And there's romance and there's Eva Marie Saint on a train. But this is this is the nightmare version of that. And in North by Northwest, Cary Grant thinks very, very quickly. He knows exactly what to do, but it's fun. Here, it's people struggling with their thoughts about the plot. Like, where do I go? But also, like, does this mean I'm going to die? And I think to kind of connect to my moment, the the times when people do do moral calculations out loud, it's always Sheriff Bell as Tommy Lee Jones, which is what makes it enjoyable. So my moment is 
not a it's it's not necessarily a plot related thing, but I I think it cuts to the themes of the film that that we were talking about before, which is when Wendell comes to to talk to him in the morning at his favorite diner, and he's reading the newspaper and he's talking about the couple that um, have been keeping the uh, elderly residents hostage and then uh, cashing their social security checks and then either torturing or or killing them. He says that neighbors were alerted to their uh, presence there, what they were doing, because an old man escaped wearing nothing but a dog collar. And then he says one extra thing to Wendell, which is he says, you'd have thought that what would have caught their attention is them out there digging all those holes. And so just like they're doing practical or physical calculation, and like, um, you know, like like he does when he tries to figure out where the briefcase went, right? He's he's doing a similar calculation and he's wondering when things could have got so bad that a neighbor couldn't recognize that there was something weird going on at their neighbor's house. And for him, that's one of the first times explicitly in the film when somebody measures what at least it used to be like, even if it's only in his own head versus what it's like today and why it is that people are becoming more insular and only caring about their own business, which is also why I take that he gets so wrapped up in trying to go see Carla Jean uh, and Moss because it's one because to say that's none of my business and to not get involved would be exactly to be like those neighbors. And of course, he's reading a newspaper, which is all about reading about other people's business. That's how you learn about it. And you get the sense in the film that he does that every morning. Every morning he sits there in that diner. Every morning he reads that newspaper. And every day he gets a degree or two more befuddled by by what he sees happening in the world. This leads us totally into the title. So let's go to part three. Okay, welcome back. So in part three, of course, we talk about the ending, the title, the key takeaways. Dan, what do you think about the ending of this film? What a, what an ending and what a title. So finally, we get to talk about a title and an ending, you know, that are really, really interesting. So the title, of course, comes from William Butler Gates, Sailing to Byzantium. That is no country for old men. Um, you know, the film is about a, an old man finding himself out of place. He, you know, um, he's talking to the, uh, the other sheriff at one point and he says, uh, you know, it's the dismal tide. And Tommy Lee Jones says, you know, I saw things were getting bad when, when kids started having green hair and they stopped saying sir and ma'am. And this is a big thing in the novel, right? You don't have to be very old to, to, to live in America and think what has happened, right? Or to live anywhere. You don't need to be very old to walk into a high school today and, and see the kids in the halls and say, you know, what happened? And it's not just being a silly old fart. It's not just being like, um, you know, an old man who doesn't know how to use an iPhone or something. One of the things that... I, that has happened as post COVID is that there's a big teacher shortage and it's not that there's been a brain drain. It's not that kids are getting, um, you know, dumber. It's that there's a civility drain and, and things have happened in the world post COVID that, that have, that have, that have changed the way people talk to each other. And I think that in the movie, you watch a guy, a very likable guy, Sheriff Bell, who likes, you know, in the beginning, he's talking about how, um, you know, he used to like seeing the old sheriffs, they would carry a gun, but they never had to use it. And he always likes reading about these old, these old, um, old sheriffs. He's, he's out of his depth. That's why the film set during the eighties, during the war on drugs. It's when, you know, when the money for drugs became so unbelievable over the top. I mean, one thing that's not in the movie in the book is that they come across Sheriff Bell finds an airplane that's been burnt out that they were using to transport drugs on. And he realizes that these people have so much money, they can use a plane once and then just burn it up. It doesn't matter. They'll get another plane. And 
the idea isn't to stop the drugs. It's not the war on drugs. It's how do you stop people's need for drugs? How do you stop people turning to drugs? And at the end, he talks about those dreams he has where he saw his father and, um, you know, his father had the, had the, had the, the flame in the horn. And then I woke up and he comes back to reality. And I don't, I think the movie ends abruptly because there's, there's, that's it. Then I woke up. That's all a dream to get guidance from the past. Now he's retired. His wife says, I can't plan your day every day. And he's kind of just like walking around and you don't, that's it. There's no answer for him. Yeah. I don't read that as much of a downer as you do. And that is, um, if, if there's a criticism of this film, I know a lot of, a lot of people, including my wife, who I just watched it with, who says, listen, technically this is a great movie. It's super tense. It's wonderfully suspenseful. Everything about it works as a movie, but she's like, I just can't, it's too raw and I don't like it. That's what my wife, uh, that's exactly what my wife said. That's exactly what she said. Right. And especially at the end, um, when, uh, Anton catches Carla Jean, Right. And she right. says, I, uh, I know you was crazy when I yeah. when I saw you sitting there. So I just want to tease out a, a couple of things th- that you said, because here's here's where the downer is, which I get that that Sheriff Bell feels like his life is sliding out of control and because the world is sliding out of control. But I think that we're intended to understand that the world was always like that, or that the experience of being a human was always like that. And there's a couple of different hints or clues in there, which is, of course, when you see his uncle, right? Uh, and there's more about his uncle in the novel. But here's what you can glean from the movie, is that he his, he and his father, uh, Bell's father, were in some kind of shootout. Bell's father died young because somebody decided that violence was better and shot him. And now this guy is confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life. Cause he's been shot in the spine. Right. And, and yeah, Bell, so, is, Bell is older in the movie than he, than his father was. That's- exactly. And so that's why he says it, it was weird because in some ways my father's the younger man. Right. Um, so I just want to, I just want to tease that out because there's no dividing line where what they say is, well, they're used, you know, it, things used to be great. And now there's crime. I think what's actually happening is a character is saying, we always knew that there was crime, but there are certain handles that I personally used to hold on to. And now it seems like those handles have shifted to a different location. And I feel like I'm sliding. And to get back kind of to that original quadrant, right? He says, listen, I feel overmatched. That's why he retires. I feel like my capability to go in that door is no longer adequate to the moment and perhaps was never adequate to the moment because like, what's the, what's the number one thing that Sheriff Bell actually gets accomplished is he goes behind that contractor who's moving all the bodies, right? He ties, he ties it down and he asks, am I about to get a citation for improperly secured load? And he says, get your ass out of here. Right. Right. In that country way and, and sends him off. But I think that the sense of being overmatched means that your moral sense is working there's something it's there's something indicative i think about the film that says if you feel that way you feel like all past generations have felt you feel like all future generations have felt and what it means is that you have not checked out of the game because anton anton it seems like his response to the to evil and violence is to take it into himself 
become an agent or tool of that same violence and chaos and essentially to to flip it off right why does Llewellyn Moss actually get shot he's a super capable guy he's like the good Anton Chigurh because there's a there's a woman in the in the path of the same right, bullets right. and it, it what it says is like could he get away from a scrape with three guys with machine guns sure but not if there's somebody to push out of the way that's too that's a bridge too far that's how you get shot right like right the sheriff is dead and the deputy's paralyzed so like could you get out of the way probably but not if there's an not if there's another person involved and you have to worry about more than one person and so i get the sense that no country for old men is supposed to be as a concept comforting in that you you are connected to your ancestors you're connected to the way that all humans feel if things are working properly here i, I don't know i think i think the idea that i think the idea of using the word comforting with the title and the feel of this movie it, it, they, they don't go together for me and i was taking notes on what you just said i totally get the idea that it's easy for anyone in any generation to romanticize the past and say things were never this bad. There's a famous, if, if you're listening, you can look it up on the internet. There's a famous, famous passage. You ever see this passage? It's like the kids today are terrible. They have no respect and blah, blah, blah. And the speaker's Aristotle. It's a big joke, right? So since, since ancient Greece, people have complained about the, these damn kids today. And then we see, you know, now they're reading comic books and they've got that rock and roll music and, and we, and you know, we get the whole thing. That's logically, I, I understand that. But I think the difference is that in this movie, we have Anton and that Anton is like nothing we've seen before in the novel, in the movie, he's called a prophet of destruction. Like he, he is the prophet of, of the times. He is the epitome of them. And that when you have a guy walking around with an air tank, poking holes in people's foreheads because it's just more efficient and it's even more efficient than shooting them. That's that. And that's what the, that's what the, the drug money has been able to buy that they're the, who hire him. I think that logically I get it. It's easy to say, Oh yes. Okay. You know, but th this is something brand new. And I think that even Cormac McCarthy doesn't know what the answer is. It's, it's that that's why Anton survives. Even at the end, I've heard people complain about the end when he gets hit by the car or hits by the, you know, it's, it's, it's too much because he goes away. That's it. He's still out there somewhere. And Tommy Lee Jones knows it. He says in the beginning, somewhere out there is a prophet of destruction. And what do you do? Like, how do you, what do you do with Anton? I think what you're called to do about Anton is to not shrink into yourself and shrink the moral sense. Actually, I think what, what it, what comforts me about this movie is that if, if, Ed Tom retired and then he goes, Oh, I feel much better. Not my problem anymore. Yeah. Great movie. Thanks. Thanks everybody for watching. Right. That's, that's one kind of ending. The other kind of ending is to see him walking around and his wife is half chiding. Right. So he says, I guess I'll help out around here. Yeah. And she says better not. <laughs> right. So there's no, right. There's no, place for you yeah, you're on his either. side. Right. If, if at the end, Ed Tom says, well, that Anton is somebody else's problem now then you'd you'd feel cheated because you're on his side so much and he's so but i think at the end when he says then i woke up and he's just sitting there at the table he's 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 helpless and you, you feel bad i don't feel comforted by him at all i'm glad that he has some 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 connection to his past but it's not it's you, totally you'd feel you'd feel worse if he didn't feel that way right M yeah but much, you feel much bad worse. for him you feel bad for him don't you i mean you, I don't see how you can watch the end of this movie. It says, then I woke up. I think, have, I think it's the, fade to black. It's not even a fade to black. It's a quick black. 
I think that the the third time that I watched it and Carla Jean refuses to to play Anton's game, she actually she recalls an earlier scene, um, which is when um, she recalls an earlier scene when Carson is sitting in the chair and he tries to bargain his way out with money. And he says, you know, I'm I'm a day trader now. You know, we could walk to an ATM. There's fourteen thousand dollars in it. And Anton is laughing because you can't bargain with death and Carla Jean seems to know that and so what you have instead is is dignity right she tells him yeah that you don't have to do this but what but what she doesn't mean is kill me what she means is you don't have to be this way that you are right and and absolutely Carla Jean Carla Jean rises to the moment She's she's an almost because she's only minor, but she's an almost tragic figure, right? She says, you don't have to do this. You have a choice. I'm not going to plead for you. So she has that going for her. Bell has his profound moral sense that we totally admire him for for doing that. There's not, there's not an unlikable thing about Bell in the movie, but it's it, but so what they you know, she ends up dead and he ends up useless. I don't I don't think that he's useless. I think that he's doing what human beings do. The useless yeah, people in this movie. And it's the, sad. The, it's terrifying. It's the useless people in this movie are the neighbors of the of the couple right. that were burying the old people. But and he, so he's he is stuck in a place where he can't necessarily change his circumstance, but he can care about it. And I think that that is what where the the film and the novel tells you that you are. And what is that caring going to do? What is that caring going to do? That caring is human. That caring is what it, is, it means to be human. It, it, it absolutely is what it means to be human. But somewhere out there was a prophet of destruction. And, and then they're I woke always, up. But there, there, always ha- there always has been. There always has been a prophet of destruction. That, that this, this book takes place specifically like two generations after World War II. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, like the, some sort of destruction is being visited on his town, but it will be visited over here and it will be visited over here and it will be visited over here. And, it, and even if things got a, an iota better, right? Cause, cause we want this movie was, this book came out in the mid nineties and this movie was made about 10 years later, right? That that's, we're now another two generations down the road and it feels bad, but it feels bad in different ways. Right. And it will it will always shift. And the destruction is is always coming. But the question is, what are you going to do about it? What is going to be your response to it? And I think to not read the paper is the wrong response. Thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you've enjoyed our conversation about No Country for Old Men. You could follow us on Twitter at 15MAN Film. You could also check out what we've been watching on. Letterbox. Letterbox. So go on Letterbox. Let us know what to see. There's millions of movies more we want to do. Please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It means a lot to us. And please stay in touch. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>